as we're continuing through Genesis, I hope that you're seeing um, God just do or experiencing God do a fresh work in your uh, life and in your faith as we're walking on this journey. Last week, we began and ended the teaching with this question. Have you ever had a call that changed the direction of your life? Have you ever had a call that changed the direction of your life? And we talked about how God is is speaking his word to us, and and we have opportunity to listen and to walk in obedience to that call. Today, I'm I'm offering another question, and it is this. How we get God desire for us to make decisions in our lives? We're going to be specifically looking at decision-making in our lives. How would God desire for us to make decisions in our lives? I want to share two decision-making processes that Joel and I went through in our lives, and they are connected to calling. Uh, so when I talked about uh, calling last week, I shared about the, the call that was offered to me to leave my engineering job and to come on staff full-time at a church. I want to give you a little bit more of what happened after that. There was a season, so that, that call came, but there was a season of, of discerning and praying in God, you know, what would you have us to do? Is this something that you would have us do? If so, how and when? It was a really unusual set of circumstances uh, that led us to a decision. Uh, I was, again, I was working in engineering, and the company that I worked for uh, was primarily working with the defense contracts that we were providing, um, closure heads, reactor vessels, and things like that for submarines, aircraft carriers. And there was a, a significant cut in government spending in regards to, to the defense budget. And when that happened, I was working on a commercial project, uh, but when that happened, the company realized we've, we need to downsize. It was a significant downsize that was coming. Uh, was approximately 800 employees, I believe, at that time, and a couple hundred people were going to have to be laid off. And what the company did, they said, you know, this layoff is coming, there's nothing that we can do about it. Uh, so if anybody would be interested in taking a voluntary layoff, we want to extend that first before we make cuts. And as Joel and I thought about it and we prayed about it, we thought, well, you know, we had been contemplating potentially me leaving my job any, anyway. And um, as we prayed about it, we really felt this peace that I was supposed to submit for voluntary layoff. Uh, and part, of, and a significant part of it was this, is that, that should I not be laid off and then step away, you know, then, you know, soon after resign from my job, that means that that would have cost somebody their job, you know, that somebody else would have been laid off that wouldn't have needed to. So we really felt that God was using the circumstance to, uh, to lead us to, to make a transition. Uh, the job had not yet opened up at the church. Uh, there had been discussions, but it was not yet available. But we really felt that because, um, for the sake of somebody else, that it was the time that we needed to make, to make that step. Uh, so I submitted for voluntary layoff. And what was really, um, really neat in this process is the uh, vice president of operations that I uh, submitted my resignation to, he was one of the people that had interviewed me uh, five and a half years earlier. And I distinctly remember in the conversation, you know, we were talking about availability to work and things like that. In that conversation, I talked, you know, we talked about availability to work. And I said, well, I would really prefer, if at all possible, not to work on Sundays. And, you know, it gave me an opportunity to share about my faith. And he said, he said, that's great because we value people of faith. So then I'm going back five and a half years later and, and telling him I'm submitting my resignation because I really feel that, that God's leading me into ministry and just gave an opportunity to be a witness. But, uh, but he said, you would have had your job. So thankfully, the decision that God led us to saved somebody else from losing their job. Uh, and then there was another time, many years later, I'd, we'd stepped into full-time ministry. And a number of years later, we had felt at different times that God may be calling us from where we were serving to another place. 
I was serving as an associate pastor, and, uh, and a, there were several situations that there were opportunities that we were contacted uh, to possibly be a lead pastor at another church. And this one church, we had had a couple interviews and visits and really thought that there was great alignment, and we really thought maybe God was going to call us from where we, the church that we were serving at, to be a lead pastor at this church. And I was literally on the phone with uh, one of the people on, on the committee, and um, you know, I told them, I said, you know, well, tomorrow I'm going to go in, I'm going to talk to my, my lead pastor and let him know what's happening because we think a transition may be coming, coming. So I ended that call, and literally as soon as I hung up that call, um, my wife said, you need to call him back and, and, and tell them that you can't do that. And I was like, well, what happened? Literally while I was on that call, we received a call on the other phone that my pastor's wife had passed away. And it was just like, we can't leave. We know that God wants us to stay here. So it was, so I called back and said, I'm sorry, but we're going to have to withdraw from this process. Uh, we just knew, knew in our hearts that we needed to stay where we were. And it was for the sake of others. I'm not saying that to, um, to in any way, like puff us up at, at, in any way. But yet in those decision-making times, what became clear for us and clear direction for the decisions we were making, there were significant decisions in our lives, was others. That, it, that God was clearly using um, the perspective on others that shaped our decisions and shaped our, the direction that our lives were going to be heading at those times. And today what we're going to see in, in Abram's life is a powerful, powerful testimony and an example of how God would have us to walk in making decisions in our lives. And this can apply to, to certainly significant decisions like uh, potentially life-changing direction decisions in our lives and also to small decisions. Uh, that as we look at this text that God wants to speak powerfully uh, concerning or showing us from Abraham, Abram's life uh, how we too can walk. So last week in Genesis chapter 12, we saw Abraham's great uh, step of faith. He heard the call of the Lord and he moved on that call. So he was called to leave his land and his people and to go to the land that the Lord would show him. Incredible step of faith. Uh, he walked in that. He obeyed that. Um, he, was, he had confirmation when he came to the land. Uh, so, I mean, there was incredible beauty. And then we saw in the second half of the chapter how Abram compromised. That when famine came to Egypt, he moved south. Uh, they went south to Egypt. And for fear, for, for fear of, of his own life, uh, again, he lied about his wife Sarai and said she's my sister because he felt that that would protect his, his life. And in fact, it did, it did protect his life. He lived, but yet it brought a disaster literally on Pharaoh and his household. Um, even though Abram had been given great wealth, um, I mean, this, it, it was just a horrible, horrible situation the way it all played out. Um, trying to protect ourselves instead of trusting God to protect us is never good. When we, when we rely on our own wisdom, our own strength, our own manipulation, our own conniving, it will not work out. And, and yes, he left with riches. We're going to talk about that. But he left with a, with a marred testimony that, um, that, that, again, his life, what he did, was not glorifying to the Lord at that time. But what we're talking about is that even with that, God is a God that brings new beginnings in our lives, that God didn't abandon him. There was a call in Abram's life, and God was not going to say, okay, I'm lifting my call because you disobeyed. No, God's call, God's grace continued to be extended to him, and we embrace this, um, this truth that victorious Christian life is a series of new beginnings, 
They're start overs. They're, they're new steps that, that we need to understand that, again, God does not take his grace away from us. His grace is being extended toward us. Now, we don't want to use that as, as an excuse to sin, uh, but we want to allow that to lead us to repentance, to turning from what we were doing that's not pleasing to God and turning toward God. So I hope that you've been embracing this past week new beginnings and seeing how God, like day-to-day, moment-to-moment, is giving us opportunities to have fresh starts. You know, so many times that we get caught in what we've, uh, what we've done wrong, and we get caught in that it's in our own thinking that we can feel trapped and we can feel stuck. But God's saying, new beginning. Here's an opportunity to take a fresh step and to start anew. So today we're going to be looking at Genesis chapter 13, and we're going to go through it. Uh, we're going to look at it in four sections. We're going to go down through the, the fullness, the full text, um, just in sections, and then we're going to talk, go back and look at it and see how God desires to apply the truth that we read about Abram and his life, and then how we can make decisions according to God's plan. So I want to just ask, uh, we've been in worship and in prayer, but I just want to, again, just posture ourselves to receive from the word of God. So would you bow your heads with me as we invite the Holy Spirit to speak to us personally and deeply through his word. God, we thank you, Lord, for your word that is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. God, we thank you that your word is alive. Lord, that as we look at your word, it is living, it's active, and it pierces to the inner part of our being. And God, we desire for your word to do all that you desire for it to do. And God, we ask that you would help us, Lord, to have ears that will hear clearly. Uh, God, give us minds that will understand. God, we pray that our eyes would be opened as we read and as we see, God, what you have given us in your word. And Lord, ultimately, Lord God, we pray that our hearts would be transformed. God, that you would do a work in each one of us, Lord, that only you can do, Pierce us to the depths of our being, Lord. Uh, bring change, Father, to even the motives and the, the things that are deep-rooted within us. God, so that our lives can more clearly reflect the beauty of you. Uh, God, we thank you for every person, Lord, that is, uh, that is hearing your word this morning, both those that are present and those that are joining us online. God, we thank you that your spirit is actively working through your word. And we pray, God, that you would help us to yield and surrender to you so that you would be glorified in all things. And Lord, we ask this in the precious name of Jesus, everyone said, amen, so be it. So we're in Genesis chapter 13, going to begin by reading the first five verses. So Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev with his wife and everything he had, and Lot went with him. Abram had become very wealthy in livestock and in silver and gold. From the Negev, he went from place to place until he came to Bethel to the place between Bethel and Ai, where his tent had been earlier, and where he had first built an altar. There, Abram called on the name of the Lord. Now Lot, who was moving about with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents. So this is a transition. As we said last week, uh, the the text ended with, with Abram and Lot being in Egypt, but being expelled, literally like Pharaoh kicked him out. Uh, because of what had happened. Uh, because Abram had lied, you know, sickness, disease came on Pharaoh and his household, and Pharaoh said, get out of here. So we, we saw an exit last week, and then we have today, we have Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev. So, so there's, a, there's this moving back to where he had come from. So God's grace, again, did not abandon Abram in Egypt. 
But yet God's grace was being extended and giving Abram a chance for a new opportunity. And even though Abram had done things that did dishonor the name of God, God still extended, again, his grace, his love, and a fresh start to Abram. And I feel like we need to hear that over and over and over again. Because when we fail, especially when it's a public failure and others see our failure, we can take on shame that literally becomes this wall that's built around us. And that wall that's built around us can actually prevent us from receiving the grace that God is so freely extending. You know, but what did Abram do? He went back to where he had come from. He went back to, this, to, to the Negev. So this, there's, again, fresh opportunity. So the chapter begins with a return to the land that, that he had come from, the land that had been promised to him. It also shows a return to worship. This is so fundamental. It's so key for us all to see that it, it shows a return to worship. It says that again, when he came to that place to Bethel, it was where he had first built an altar. You know, so many times when we get off track, one of the best things we can do is go back to where we were on track last. There was, um, there was a man named Henry Gruber that I had the opportunity to hear and, and actually uh, with, with groups do some prayer walking. And Henry gave testimony of how when he was a young man, uh, he ended up living his life prayer walking the world, like literally all over the world. God would just lead him. But what happened in, in his younger years, he was going out and he was witnessing in the city in Phoenix. And he would be walking down the street and he would make a turn. And when he made that turn, he would feel like the peace of God leave. So what he did, he went back to where he last experienced that peace and then walked on. And he was allowing the peace of God to lead him step by step. And it's amazing what God did. Like literally, uh, he was walking down the street one time and he, and he felt the, the peace of God lead him into a dark alley at night. And he came across somebody who had been attacked and was literally about to breathe their last breath. I believe the man had been stabbed. And Henry had the opportunity to lead him to Christ before he died. You know, so sometimes, again, when we get, start going down the, the wrong track, sometimes the best thing to go the right way is to go back to the last place we were right, to come back to this place of worship. And this is what Abram did. He had a new beginning, so he was leaving the land of Egypt and came back to where he was. So did Abram learn from his mistakes in Egypt? Did he learn to trust God? I believe what we're going to see today is a, is a resounding yes, is that he allowed his failure and his mistakes to do something transformational in his life. And this is the opportunity that we have, is that, that, that the mistakes that we make can become building places in our lives. You know, we sang that, that song, the song New Wine, and, and what's it about? It's about us being changed. It's us allow the pressing and, the, and the, the difficulties of life to shape us into something new, something that is that a person that is more and more in the image of Christ. And I believe that we're gonna see that, that Abram allowed that very thing to happen. Let's go back to these places of worship. Let's go back to this place of the altar where we're crying out and we're lifting up our lives and our hearts to God. Moving on to verse six. But the land could not support them while they stayed together. For their possessions were so great that they were not able to stay together. Quarreling arose between Abram's herders and lots. The Canaanites and Perizzites were also living in the land at that time. So Abram said to Lot, let's not have any quarreling between you and me or between your herders and mine, for we are close relatives. Is not the whole land before you? Let's part company. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. 
If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. Now here we see, and, and we talked about this last week, is that what could appear to be blessing from Egypt in that, that Pharaoh gave them great wealth. He gave them the herds. They had money, and, and their wealth, the wealth is described here. Um, it's incredible how they came out of Egypt. And you know, some people would say, well, hey, the lying paid off, right? <laughs> well, no, because the, the wealth is not always a good thing. You know, um, possessions and wealth uh, are basically neutral. It's not that it's good or bad. A lot of people say that, that, you know, money is the root of all evil. That's not true. It's the love of money. It's what we do with the wealth. It's what we do with the possessions. But here, the possessions that they came out with actually created a problem. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen this before, but money and property can really strain relationships, especially when it comes to family. So I... The, it just happens. It happened. I mean, there, was this, there were disputes. There were um, uh, challenges. There was opposition here. And it had to do with property. And the same thing happens so easily in our lives today. That we can get consumed with the stuff. And that stuff becomes a, a, an object of division. And that division can play out in really negative ways in our lives. So we need to be aware. Like how much... How much emphasis are we putting on stuff? How much importance do, does money and property have in our lives, and how is it affecting relationships? These are things that we need to be aware of. God desires for us to use the things that are entrusted to us, the things that are placed in our hands for his honor and for his glory. And sometimes that actually means releasing the things that are in our hands. Now, what's happening is probably... The reason that there's not enough uh, support for all of their herds, their livestock and things, is because Canaan is already occupied. The Canaanites and the Perizzites are already there. So they're, they're using the property. They're using the land. Uh, so that probably contributed significantly to there not being enough to support both Abram and Lot and all of their herds. But there's another thing that's, that's, that's here that I don't know if we necessarily see. Because Canaanites and Perizzites are there, they're also probably seeing what's happening in this dispute. That the world around Abram and Lot are probably watching what is happening in this conflict. And it's important for us to realize that the world is watching. The world is seeing what we go through as, as believers in Christ. And they're watching to see how will they handle this? How will they walk through this difficult situation? How will they walk through this conflict? And it's important that we understand that all that we do is a testimony to those around us. Now, when we do well and we follow God's way, it's a testimony of the beauty of God. But as we saw last week, our testimony isn't always positive. If we're going to trust ourselves instead of trusting God, there can be a negative testimony. What's going to happen here is that there's going to be a beautiful testimony that goes out to the, to the Canaanites and the Perizzites that are quite possibly watching watching from outside. So what happens is Abram is the clan leader. So he has a primary responsibility to, uh, to keep peace or to maintain peace. And what he does is absolutely amazing. You talk, and I, I believe, again, I look at this, and I, I see a transformed person from chapter 12. I see somebody who, who has a trust in God and has this incredible um, tenacity in his faith that is so encouraging and such a beautiful example. What he did, he made a decision that I believe states very clearly this, 
is that people should be more important than things and positions in our lives. That people need to be priority. Period. And when we come to places of conflict, when we come to places of significant decision, people need to be priority. You know, the stuff, all that we see, the, the, the things that we can work so hard for, it's gonna pass away. But what is eternal? People. People live forever. Each person has an eternal soul. And people need to be a priority. And that's what, that's what Abram, Abram did. He said, you know, Lot, you're more important to me than what land I get. Now, this is interesting because, again, Abram was promised land. Like they're standing right there in the land that he was promised. And Abram was willing to say, open-handed, I'm trusting God, not me. I trusted me last chapter. <laughs> this chapter, I'm going to trust God. And that's what he did. He literally released the decision to Lot and said, you know, hey, you go that way, I'll go this way. You go that way, I'll go this way. You choose. Now, I mean, Abram had the right to choose. I think we need to see that. Abram had the right to choose which land. He could have said, this, is, this land is my land, that land is your land. <laughs> Sorry. Which lot will you choose? Sorry. I wanted so bad to get a lot pun in here. I'm sorry. Because I've got an even worse one. So, okay, I, yeah, I wasn't going to go here, but let's, let's go here quick. So, if Abram would have thrown his nephew, what, was he, what would he be doing? He'd be casting lot. So, time for a new beginning. Okay, I... I Believe it or not, I wrestled with this <laughs> in preparation. But, but he was trusting, he, he literally gave Lot the choice. You choose and, and I'll, I'll comply. I'll support whatever you choose. So let's see what happens. What's your guess? Lot looked around and saw that the whole plain of the Jordan towards Zoar was well watered, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself the whole plain of the Jordan and set out toward the east. The two men parted company. Abram lived in the land of Canaan while Lot lived among the cities of the plain and pitched his tents near Sodom. Now the people of Sodom were wicked and were sinning greatly against the Lord. So what do we have here is, is Lot is, is, is choosing decisions based on what his eyes can see. Now, that doesn't sound like a bad thing, right? I mean, we should look at situations, we should evaluate, but he's looking and he's seeing this incredible land and he's saying, that's where, that's, that's the best. That's where I'm gonna go. Well, I mean, what does it say that led him to that decision? Well, th there were two things that he was comparing it to. One, when he looked out, he saw it and it looked like the garden of the Lord. I mean, like he had heard about, I guess, the garden of Eden and it's, it's like, or it just seemed like this was the place that God's, God had just blessed, and, and that's the land I want. But there's another thing that's really significant that it points to that it reminded him of Egypt. Now, here we can learn something really important. You can take the boy out of Egypt, but you may not take Egypt out of the boy. Okay? He wasn't in Egypt anymore, but his heart was still connected. 
Egypt was a place that spoke of the world's systems. And even though he had left that place that represented the world's systems, he carried that in his heart. Well, what happens is that we're making decisions out of our hearts. You know, in James, it talks about the covetedness that can often lead us and cause, dis- cause even divisions among us because our hearts are, are selfish. And, you know, in some of this, it, honestly, it, it's understandable. I'm not, again, we're not just, you know, throwing a lot under the bus here because, I mean, he's doing what we all have tendencies to do is that look on the temporal and get, you know, and, and again, use our, our own thinking and our own logic to lead our decisions. That's what Ab- Abram had done last week, Remember? And Lot's doing the same thing. But the thing is, is that, um, th- th- that fear can drive so much of what we do. So if you remember, the reason they had to leave Can- Canaan last week was because of famine. And they went down to Egypt, and Egypt wasn't in famine because the Nile River made sure that, that they had what they needed for them, there to be crops and no famine. Well, when Lot looked out, he said, this is like Egypt. He's saying, this is provision, this is protection. We had to leave here last time because of famine. I don't want to leave again. So, I mean, again, there's, there, there are very logical reasons that would have led Lot toward this place. But there's something else that, that Lot did that was similar to Egypt. It said that he went near to Sodom, but it never says that he built an altar. If you remember, we talked about that when Abram had been building altars in, in Canaan, when he went to Egypt, where was the worship? It doesn't record anything about Abram building an altar in Egypt. So the thing is, is that whatever we're doing, are we making sure that worship, looking to God, is first and foremost? We want to look at the progression of what happened. Is that Lot, he looked, first of all, he just looked toward this land. He looked toward. Then he moved near, and later we're going to find that he moved in. And isn't that the process of, of, sin, of the way sin can work in our lives, that, that our eyes are drawn to something that isn't what's best for us? In fact, it may be something that God says is not good for us, calls it sin. We look first, we're tempted, we're drawn of our own desires. We move toward, and we get near, and then we kind of touch, and before we know, we're in. And this is the process that we're seeing happen in Lot's life. Now, there's going to be rescue, and that's coming. But we need to be careful what we're doing in regards to what our eyes see and what we're moving toward. Now, there's that parenthetical statement in there. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. And for those that are reading this account for the first time, that's like kind of a a foreshadowing what's going to come, that this place that he's moving to is going to be wiped out. And he's going to need to exit this great place that he had moved toward. But the other thing that it says it talks about what was happening there. It says that the people of Sodom were wicked and were sinning greatly against the Lord. Now, if you go back to the original language, it's not just all people are sinners. Like, these are like really significant lifestyles that are against, God, against one another and against God. And again, we're gonna move into some more uh, accounts, a couple more accounts in regards to Sodom later. But he was moving into this place that it was danger and he didn't see it. We talked about this before, is that, that we need to watch for warning signs. And one of the things, I don't know if you noticed here or not, but he was going east. And we had talked about in, earlier in, in Genesis, moving east is often representative up to this point in Genesis of moving away from the presence of God, leaving the Garden of Eden, 
Cain went east. Babel, they settled in the east. Now, um, now Lot is moving to the east. And the thing is, is that the, the city of Ai actually means ruin or heap. Um, and Bethel means house of God. And you look at this direction, is that again, there's a movement away from the house of God. It's a movement toward the world. And we're camped, as long as we're here, we're in this in-between place. We're, we know what the world is like. The world is, is not for God. The world is not God as priority. We also know where we're heading, that it's heaven. It's a perfect place, the house of God, pure, separate from all sin, uh, in the presence of God. And we're in this in-between place. So we have decisions moment by moment of, of where are we gonna camp? Where are we going to move toward? What are we going to set our eyes on? And again, unfortunately, Lot chose a very dangerous place to live. 2 Corinthians 6.17, we're told this, to come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing and I will receive you. And he's talking about the, the close affinity that, that we can have with the world and with the world's ways, with the world's systems. That we need to be separate. It doesn't mean that we, that, we, that we live completely separate, but we have to watch, we have to guard our hearts as we live among the world. We have to protect ourselves. Second Timothy 2, it says that we are to flee evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness. Flee one and pursue the other. So, so what happens here is that we have a separation. That, that in order to, to, to uh, resolve a conflict, the only thing that they could do and the best thing that they could do is to go different directions. And this is a peaceful separation. Now, a friend of mine uses this, um, this test to see how we do when there are separations relationally in our lives. He calls it the Walmart test. So if you've had a separation relationally in your life and you're in Walmart and you look down the aisle and you see that other person, that one that you're separated from in relationship, will you move toward or shoot down another aisle? It's a Walmart test. And it's pretty significant because we, we are called to live in peace. We're gonna talk more about that in just a few moments. But, but when, when there is a separation, there are times that separations are, are good and right. But yet, how are our hearts toward one another? So we go on then in this passage in verse 14. And we move from where Lot moved to what happens with Abram. So this again, Lot, or Abram had, had submitted to the choice of Lot. Lot, you chose, choose this, then I'll choose this. Lot, choose to go east. What was amazing, Abram had surrendered this all. He had held it all loosely, trusting God, and he got Canaan. Incredible. So like, when God has a promise, we don't need to, we need to, to be good stewards but we can trust that, that when God has given us his word, he's gonna fulfill it, and we don't have to clench tight. In fact, we, we always need to stay open-handed. There's something about generosity that, that God blesses because he's a generous God. And, and God blessed Abram's generosity here by placing him in, in this land of Canaan. And the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had parted from him, Look around from where you are, to the north and south, to the east and west. All the land that you see, I will give to you and your offspring forever. All the land I'm giving to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth. So that if anyone could count the dust, think about that. If anyone could count the dust, then your offspring could be counted. Go. Walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I am giving it to you. So Abram went to live 
near the great trees of Mamre at Hebron, where he pitched his tents. There he built an altar to the Lord. So we see another new beginning. When Lot and Abram separated, God gives reaffirmation to the promise. God shows him the abundant reward. Lot had looked up and saw the world. God lifted Abram's eyes to see the promise before his very eyes. And the promise, again, was to his descendants forever. And then, again, because I was thinking about this, like, it talks about Abram walking through, and I just wonder if, like, as he's walking the dust, you know, uh, getting in his sandals or whatever, and, and he's thinking, like, God said that, like, if anybody could count all that dust, they were going to be able to count my descendants, which is impossible. Like, just think about how God's word is touching his feet as he's walking. And the reality and the promise is coming to his mind. And God is desiring for us to experience him in that, in that way, that as we walk in accordance with his word and his direction, that we would see the miraculous. And even when I can't see it, believe that he's working. Even when I can't perceive it, embrace that he is working and he is fulfilling his promises because his promises are true. He cannot lie. We need to hang on to this. His promises are true. He cannot lie. They will be fulfilled. So we have a process. We talked about how Lot had looked, moved toward, and moved in. Here we have uh, Abram's lifting. He lifted his eyes and looked. He lifted his feet and walked. And he lifted his heart and worshiped. He lifted his eyes and he looked as God revealed what he should see. He lifted his eyes and looked. He lifted his feet and walked. We talked about that. It's putting faith to our feet. And he lifted his heart and he worshiped. What a process for us to embrace in our lives. Last week, he didn't do so well. This week, Abram passes the test with flying colors. Incredible beauty. The saying that, that I came across this past week that I thought was beautiful. Those who believe the promise of God's provision may be generous with their possessions. Those who believe the promise of God's provision may be generous with their possessions. And we truly can be. What we have is not ours. We've been bought with a price. All that we possess is not ours, we're stewards. And one of our overseers, Keith Yoder, has, 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 has given us this counsel that God's money moves, or works best when it's moving. God's money works best when it's moving. And for us to hold on to and to accumulate and to acquire can actually prevent a beautiful flow that God is desiring. Abraham open-handed, open-handed offered his possessions and God open-handedly blessed abundantly. And that blessing sometimes comes in, in, in material ways so that we can be even more generous. Other times it comes with a peace in the heart and an eternal blessing that no one can take away. So two core values as we've gone down through this that we're gonna take a few minutes to look at. Two core values have, are in the story that are core values of Grace Fellowship Church Shrewsbury. They're peacemaking and presence-based living. We're gonna walk through these and just unpack a little bit of, of how, how this is shown in the story of Abram and Lot and how God is desiring this to work out in our lives. So we're gonna look at peacemaking first. Peacemaking seeks to have God's heart 
to bring his peace to our relationships. Peacemaking, peacemaking seeks to have God's heart to bring his peace to our relationships. So what we're looking at is, uh, if you go on, the, on, the, on our church website, site, the very first tab, top left, if you go under who we are, this is the very first uh, page that'll come up, and it, and it has peacemaking, it has our, our, our core values, our family values, and, and the Peacemakers Pledge is right there. It's also out in, in the lobby, we have a board that hundreds of people have signed, and there's, there's little copies out there if you would like to take that. So again, it's available both online and in the lobby. But what, what we're seeing here in Abram's life is that he was a peacemaker. He was a peacemaker. It, that he actively took steps to bring peace to where there was conflict. And this is something that God's calling us to do, is to be peacemakers in our lives. Romans twelve eighteen says this, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Does that guarantee that when you walk according to Peacemaker's Pledge and you, you endeavor to be a peacemaker that there's always going to be peace? The answer is no. It's not always going to happen, but do your part. Do all that you can do, and then you trust it to God. We're going to see another verse that's going to speak even to the future of what happens when we, when we desire and we move in peacemaking ways. I want to read the first paragraph of the Peacemaker's Pledge. And the Peacemaker's Pledge is a commitment to biblical conflict resolution. It says this, as people reconciled to God by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we believe that we are called to respond to conflict in a way that is remarkably different from the way that the world deals with conflict. We also believe that conflict provides opportunities to glorify God, serve other people, and grow to be like Christ. Therefore, in response to God's love and reliance on his grace, we commit ourselves to respond to conflict according to the following principles. There are four main sections. I'm gonna read down through them, uh, just the headings right now, and then I just wanna unpack the first two just personally in my life. The four main headings say this. First, glorify God. Second, get the log out of your own eye. Third, gently restore. And four, go and be reconciled. And what I've found personally is that so many times, when there, there are situations of conflict, there's tension in relationship, that so much resolution can happen when I focus on those first two. The first, it's to glorify God, that, that we commit to honor God with our heart, with our thoughts, with our words. We're, we're committing to glorify him. And then secondly, get the log out of your own eye. This is, Jesus had given, given us an explanation of that, is that, that we need to be careful that not to try to remove a speck in somebody else's eye when we have a log in our own. And, and when I look to God and say, God, be glorified in my life, I, I desire for my heart, for my attitude, for my motives, for my thoughts, for my words to glorify and honor you, man, transformation starts to happen inside of me. And then when I look in the mirror and say, okay, God, if I'm to address something in someone else, then I've got to allow you to let me see in the mirror clearly the issues that I deal with, the log that's in my own eye. Because how can I help somebody else when I'm blinded by, by my own stuff? So it's at putting it myself before God and saying, God, work your, your way in me. Do what you desire to do in me. And so many times I've experienced that, that in situations that, that often the, that, that there's a peace that comes to my heart because God's doing a work in me 
that then just begins to flow into the relationship, and sometimes that takes care of situations because the situation had more to do with me than them. Ever been there? If not, I pray that God will open your eyes to see that you have, and you may be. But there's a lot of times that just dealing with, with my issues of my heart bring resolution. And if we need to go to the next step, if we need to, to, to approach, if we need to go, go and reconcile, then we're doing it with a heart that is after God's heart. And we're doing it with eyes that can see clearly because we're allowing God to address the things in us before we step into the situation that God is calling us to speak. James 3, 17 and 18. I don't know how many people read through James this past week, but it's about a, literally about a 15-minute read, and I want to encourage you, if you didn't do it this past week, uh, to jump in and just read through those five chapters. Powerful. Uh, about midway through the book, it says this, and it, it deals with peacemaking. But wisdom that comes from heaven, this is after James describes wisdom that is not of God, but he says wisdom that comes from heaven is, first of all, pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. That is beautiful. That's the wisdom that God's desiring for each one of us to embrace and to walk in. And listen to this promise. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. Now, does that mean that as peacemakers, when we do the things, things the way that the Bible says and the way the Spirit is leading us, does that mean that we're gonna see results right away? Sometimes yes, but do you realize what is being said here? Who sow in peace, reap a harvest. How much time is there between sowing and harvest? Depends on the crop, right? Depends on the climate. It depends on a lot of things. But here's the promise is that, that again, when we do things, it's the seed of the word of God. The word will not return void. It will accomplish what's sent to do. As we do the right things, God is promising blessing. Sometimes there's the delay. We don't see that blessing right away. But the, the, the blessing is promised. Those that sow in peace will reap a harvest of righteousness. So let's sow in peace. Let's again desire to have God's heart so that we will bring peace to our relationships. And finally, we're going to look at presence-based living. Now, uh, again, Keith Yoder that, that I referenced earlier, one of our overseers, has written a book called Presence-Based Leadership. It's the art of mastering Presence-Based Leadership, incredible book. Many of, uh, of the leaders here have gone through it and others have, have as well. Uh, excellent book. So it's talking about presence-based leadership. I'm gonna to speak to presence-based living, which is the same principles, uh, but this also applies to our individual lives. In leadership, we're talking about how it applies to a team of leaders and a group that is being overseen. Uh, I wanna specifically point this toward us individually, presence-based living. Now, in presence, again, on the website, when we talk about uh, our core family values, it's humility, presence, unity, which is accomplished through peacemaking, um, and, and it's an outgrowth of being humble and in the presence of God, but it's humility, presence, unity, and authority. And under presence, I want you to hear uh, what, what we've, we've declared as one of our family core values. Presence is this, looking upward, we yield our will and ways to the authority, wisdom, love, and direction of Jesus Christ in every area of our lives, surrendering, surrendering all discernment, conversations, attitudes, opinions, plans, actions, reputation, and authority to Christ's authority and purpose. That's presence-based living. 
that we're going before God and we're just, we're putting him at the top of everything. We're saying, God, it's about you. I want your way. I want your, your wisdom. I want all that you are to be manifested in my life. And how can that possibly happen? It's through a posture and practice of worship in our living. A posture and a practice of worship in, in living. Abram, what did it say in, in, in verses 4 and 18? 4, he's going back to the altar. It's worship. 18, he's building another altar. It's this constant posture of worshiping God, pointing to him, focusing on him, saying, God, your way, not my way. Exalting who he is. Do you realize that so many times we get stuck in our, in our struggles and our stuff because we're, we're looking at it too much on this level and this level is, too, is overwhelming. It is overwhelming. It doesn't just seem overwhelming. It is overwhelming. When I worship, I'm moving to a different plane. I'm moving to, this, to experiencing the presence, the power, the person of God in a way that gives me a completely different perspective. I'm, I'm looking upward so that then he, he gives me a completely fresh and new perspective on this horizontal. So it's, this, it's a posture and a practice of continual worship toward God. This towardness has been so helpful for me. As if especially, uh, uh, Keith was here and he shared with his staff, and, and it's in his book, it's around, and it's in 80-some, I think, as far as the pages, uh, and I went back and read, read, read it again, but he talks about towardness, and these two things are so key to presence-based living, is this, is that presence-based living has a constant focus toward God and toward others. And that's what we saw when we look at Abram, what happened when he came back to Canaan from Egypt, he had a posture toward God and it yielded a posture toward others. His worship was to God, he came back to the altar and it gave him this posture toward Lot that was other-centered. So this is, when we talk about towardness, we're talking about the very nature of the Trinity and the interaction of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That, that, that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are, are toward one another. It's facing toward, it's moving toward. The other is the destination. There's not selfishness within the Trinity at all. The Father is toward the Son and the Holy Spirit. The Son is toward the Father and Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is toward the Father and, and, and the Son. So there's this towardness within the Trinity that is the very nature of God. And they, they are all about one another. And it's sometimes called a circle dance where they're, they're like so toward each other. It's, it's as they're going in a circle, but it's so fast that they, 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 you see them as one and they are one. Hero Israel, the Lord your God is one. So that trinity, that towardness in the trinity is what we are being invited into. That as we worship, we are entering into this oneness of God. God is present, but yet when we focus on him, when we lift him up and we magnify him, we're being drawn into this relationship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's a towardness with God. And what happens when I get drawn in, then I'm experiencing his character. I'm experiencing his love. I'm experiencing his peace. I'm experiencing all that he is. And then that transforms me so that I see toward others in a totally different way. Now, in leadership, we experience this in, in meetings constantly, that, that we, we begin meetings by just focusing on God and having our hearts toward him and getting our eyes off of ourselves and worshiping him. And we do this, we do it individually, but we're doing it as a group. And as we're doing that, Christ is lifted up among us. 
And then as we do that, God is giving us hearts towards one another in a deeper and deeper way. We minister to one another in that way so that the, the decisions, the discernment that comes from that is from presence of God. That's presence-based leadership. But presence-based living, is, again, is living the same way toward God and toward one another. We see this in Abram, that his worship was toward God, and then we see his heart extended toward Lot. We saw it in, in David when he could have taken the throne for himself, but he was a worshiper of God, and his heart was even toward Saul who was against him. He said, I cannot touch the Lord's anointed, and he would not take the throne. He waited until God gave it to him. Ultimately, we see it in Christ. Christ was offered after 40 days of fasting in the wilderness and temptation by the enemy. The enemy offered him the kingdoms of the world. Jesus said, no, no, there's bigger. <laughs> he is the king of kings and Lord of lords over all. That we, we need to have this posture toward God that gives us the right response and posture toward others. And this can only happen by the supernatural working of God in our lives. We can only have hearts toward others that are the way God desires when we have God's heart living within us and our heart is surrendered to his heart. Romans 12.10 says this, be devoted to one another in love, honor one another above yourselves. That having this heart toward one another, this devoted to one another, I can't do that for you and toward you unless my heart is first toward God. I experienced it in prayer this morning. We were praying as um, worship team and, and other intercessors that come in. And as soon as, literally, as soon as I went to prayer, like God showed me, he gave me a heart toward those that were around me that, that I hadn't had a minute prior. And it's not that my heart was against them, but it was, I was just sharing sharing of a, a, a need, a loss that I experienced in my life yesterday. A friend of mine, his daughter passed away and it was, it was heavy on my heart. As soon as we went to prayer, I realized that this whole team has a connection to that family. But it was as I went before God in worship, I connected myself with Father, Son, Holy Spirit, that God postured my heart afresh to those that were around me. And that's what God is desiring to do in all of our lives. In Philippians chapter two, we have the, the humility of Christ, the way he gives himself for the world. And, and in this passage, it says this, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interest, but each of you to the interest of the others. I read this brief story about um, General William Booth, the founder of Salvation Army, is Later years, he was, he, his health was not good and he was not able to travel to the World Conference of the Salvation Army. He cabled, cabled one word as a message to that gathering, and that word was others. Will we be peacemaking? Will we live presence-based? Will we exalt God first so that he can give us a heart for others in a fresh way? We're gonna close um, with a song. Before we do, I just wanna invite you to bow your heads.
Uh, we're going to be singing new wine. I ask that the team would lead us in that song again. Um, but it's a surrendering. It's saying, God, here I, here I am. I'm giving you me in a fresh way. God, do a fresh work. That new wine is not something that's of me. That's of God. Scripture says that with new wine, there needs to be a new wineskin. God wants to reshape us. He wants to transform us so that he can flow through us in a fresh way. So I'm going to say a prayer, and we're going to go right into the song. And in this time, I just want to invite you to, with me, offer yourself afresh to God. Let's say, God, God, I desire, first and foremost, that my life would be worshiped to you. I desire that out of, out of being in your presence, that I would walk in your presence with a heart toward others in a greater way than I have before. And God, through this time, may actually lead you in some way to walk in obedience to what you're saying. He may have you, may lay somebody on your heart that, that you're to pray with, or maybe even go over and pray for. And if you feel led to pray for somebody, please ask them, hey, is it okay if I pray with you? God may have you go to somebody as a peacemaker and reach out to them to share the love of God and, and, and be connected in a way that is honoring to God. So God, we thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for your goodness. God, we thank you that you are the Prince of Peace. We thank you that in your presence is fullness of joy. We thank you, God, that, that you have created us to both know you and to make you known. So God, we just offer ourselves afresh right now and we want to first and foremost lift you up for who you are. We want to worship you. We want to exalt you. God, we want to be toward you. And then God, help us to have your heart that we would be toward one another in ways that would glorify and would honor you. So as we sing, feel free again if you would like to stand or to kneel or to come forward, whatever God would lead you to do. Um, just speak to him and allow him to speak to you in this time.